wakeupradio.com. Sign up for otwtube.com, uncensored free speech platform. Shout out to our super producer, Cindy Ashby. All shows are live on thewakeupradio.com. Catch replays on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, as well as otwtube.com. And now back to your host, Super Sly 75 Okay, hey, I'm welcomed by uh, esteemed attorney Audrey Thomas. Uh, we're going to pick her brain about some things in life. She has a a very hard scrabble success story that I I, I want to hear. Um, ma'am, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for uh, for uh, coming on to the platform. So a lot of things when we talked off the off camera, uh, your story is pretty phenomenal. So. If you can, and uh, you don't have to condense it, you already condense as much as you want. How did we get here? How did Audrey become the Audrey that I'm looking at right now? You know, it's going to sound cliche, right? But it's really, I was raised by a village. <laughs> I, I like to refer to myself as an average wombed man who had an exceptional love and support. And I think that pretty much sums up my journey. That's that's pretty succinct. <laughs> uh, can you just can you go into detail with the, the, the village? Who did that encompass? Um, you know, the roles. I mean, so we come from the, the school of the, the village does it, it. It takes a village to raise a child. Um, how much different would your life would have been without the village? Um, I can tell you that as an attorney and in particular as a criminal defense attorney, I can say with without equivocation, that having a village made a huge difference for me. And I'm only more recently realizing just how fortunate I am, right? Um, I always try to give the example of once my friend was complaining about not having any help with her child, she had one child. And I couldn't understand in my, in my mind why she was struggling with one child. I have nine children and I went to five different you know, postgraduate, post um, high school institutions, I secured five degrees and a law degree among that. How come she's struggling? And so I said to her, well, what happened to your mom? And she was really upset, right? And to this day, it's only now I'm understanding why she was upset, because I think it was condescending of me to ask her that, but I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. It's just that I have four mothers, right? I have my birth mother who, who, who gave birth to me. And then I have my three stepmoms because in my community, when people break up, they remain friends. So my stepdads are still in my life to this day. My stepmoms, which is my stepdad's new woman, are still in my life. So I couldn't understand why this girl was struggling because in my head, I literally thought everyone has the same reality. And how did that shape or change your viewpoint? Did you have more empathy for people that didn't come from your background? Uh, did, were you more sympathetic or were you more like, okay, what's, what's the problem here? Um, I think what happened, it culminated in me um, being more determined to help, right? So, for example, I met a young man who was charged with a double homicide. 
he allegedly had shot two people and killed them, a father and a son, actually. And when I went to the jail, I was talking to him. As we were progressing, you know, when, when everything was over, I said to him, okay, sweetheart, I'm going to go now. Let me hug you. And he, his eyes popped open, right? And then I hugged him and I said, I will see you soon. I love you. And this young man who had committed two murders, or probably more, I'm not sure, burst into tears. And I said, why are you crying? And he said, no one ever told me they loved me before. He was 20-something years old. For me, growing up with so much love and so much community and so much um, attention from various members of my family, I couldn't understand or even appreciate what he was going through. So are you the ilk that everybody can be saved? I don't think anyone needs to be saved. I think people just need to be loved where they are. I mean, it's not like he, he ended up getting like 25 to life, right? But it didn't change the fact that he needed to be loved. Like it wasn't for me to come in and judge him and wonder why he couldn't be better or why he wouldn't become a baptized Christian. Or No, I met him. I saw him as he was. And I loved him anyway. And I think that was enough because I'm going to tell you something. He and I ended up co-authoring a book. I haven't published it yet because I'm still figuring out the kinks, but eventually I'll send you a copy. Appreciate that. So in your eyes, people are redeemable. They're able to be rehabilitated or I, I, I get, well, I, I guess for me, is that part of it because you're, you're a woman? Because, you know, women, you know, everybody's like, oh. No. <laughs> no. I was raised by men. You know what I am? Do you know that I refer to myself as a wombed man? I caught that. It's because I'm as savage as I am kind. Like, you okay. don't want to draw my ire. You really don't. <laughs> right? So it's not because I'm a woman. It's because of how I was socialized, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, your socialization determines your outcome, right? Mm-hmm. I'll give you the perfect example. I got pregnant for the first time at age 14, had a baby at 15. The average person, I'm told from statistics, it, um, who has a baby as a teenager, less than 2% of women who have children in their teens go on to finish high school, let alone go to college. Mm-hmm. I ha- by the time I was 22, I had five children. By the time I was 27, I had five degrees, right? I think the distinction between me and the 98% of women who don't finish high school is I had extreme help, love, and support. My socialization made me dare to believe that I could do so much more than just be, that's a damn shame. And I'm going to tell you the joke behind that. So every time someone saw my little 15-year-old self with this big belly in front of me, they would always openly and notoriously say, mm, that's a damn shame. So after a while, I started telling people, oh, yeah, my name is That's a Damn Shame. Uh, uh. <laughs> right? But for uh. me, some of the very people who judge me, I now in my 52-year-old high-powered lawyer self represent them and their children. <laughs> that's okay. a damn shame? No, that's just my socialization. So what do you say to those that continue to, I don't know, 
procreate in less than desirable uh, conditions, situations that can't give the child the best leg up or a shot at life. Um, it seems to be a recurring theme if you follow the stats and the narratives that are put out so there. Bullshit. Uh, and why do you say that? I say that because statistics don't lie, right? But mathematicians do. The reason okay. why people make these statistics is to keep people um, depressed, right? There's a reason why they refer to certain communities as depressed communities. It's a term of art, right? If you tell people they're depressed, if you tell people that their circumstance is a damn shame, then you shy them away from all of the positive outcomes and different choices that they could possibly make, right? Mm-hmm. When, when, I, when I was pregnant at 15 and I'm driving with my mom and I'm, I'm depressed, right? Because people keep calling me, that's a damn shame. And so my mom says, hey, son, you know what? I'm like, what? She's like, I think I'm going to die young. And I go, what do you mean? And she goes, well, the Bible says that God's gift to man is to let him live to see his children and his children's children. Maybe the reason why God let you get pregnant so young is because he wants to fulfill his gift to me, but he knows I'm going to die young. In that moment, I knew I had to redeem my mother because that woman is so full of hope. She finds a positive light in everything. I'm sitting up here, 15 and pregnant. My older brother, you know, is Sheikah Supreme. <laughs> He's a genius. I, I, I adore him. He started college at 11. And she has to contend with telling my dad who... You know, they're very close. She loves him. They broke up, but they remain really good friends that he sent his child to America and she let her get pregnant at 15. Right. So she's dealing with all of this and she wasn't worried about shame or disgrace or anything. Instead, this woman found a positive biblical way to say that this was a good thing. My son is 37 years old. He's a vet tech. He's going to become a veterinarian eventually. I love him to death. He's drop-dead gorgeous, and he's not a damn shame. <laughs> he's actually quite pleasing to look at. Women crave him. Men too. <laughs> All righty then. <laughs> um, so you, you dispute um, the narratives in the way statistics are used and in, in, in how people or are, are communities are perceived, correct? Right. Absolutely. Okay. You in criminal defense, you see um, uh, certain demographics that come to you for help as opposed to others. Is that fair to say? Well, and my, my office is like the UN only because again, my socialization. So I'm a German Jew. Um, My family (laughs) fled Germany to go to Jamaica to avoid the Holocaust. So I'm tied to that community. I'm tied to the Jamaican, Caribbean, American community. Um, I grew up, I came to America at 10, so I'm tied to the Black American community, bum rush crew for life. (laughs) I'm, you know, and and so I went to a bilingual school because when I came here, they thought I was not one who spoke English. So they put me into a bilingual school. So I tapped into the Haitian community, the Hispanic community, and I'm tied into so many communities. So if you come to my office, you'd be like, How the hell did she meet him? Like one of the persons I represented, uh, this woman, Anna Soroykin, the German woman who pretended to be, I was her attorney. That's because I'm connected to a community that she's connected to. Yeah. So I'm she who stands between people and their would-be oppressors, no matter what they look like. (laughs) Okay. So you're clearly an anomaly. Yes. Okay. Um. 
that kind of gives you a different leg up and you see things from a different uh, lens per se. Yes. Um, it makes me more compassionate. Okay. Has that ever come back to haunt you? It has. And in, yet in still, many ways. Okay. And yet and still you you still remain steadfast and in, in being a compassionate person. I have to be because it would be hypocritical for me to turn my back on anyone because no one's ever turned their back on me. Right? right. No one's ever like I've had a, when I tell you that I have been well loved, believe me. Um, I'll give you the perfect example. July 29, 2019. I get a phone call from my, my attorney. Cause now I need a lawyer. And it's, he says, you have to come with me to the district attorney's office. Someone has filed a complaint. You're going to be arrested. I get arrested. I'm all over the news, the news, like front page. It's really big and disgraceful. And I went through it like nothing, right? What, what did not surprise me was the level of love, support, and kindness that I received. I'm talking judges, doctors, lawyers, the, the, the guy who has the hot dog stand on the corner. Like every single person came to my rescue. And here I am three years later, still doing my thing, you know, living my best life, having written four books, <laughs> um, and I'm unscathed. That only happened because I was supported, right? And I've come to realize that no matter what you're going through, the only way that you could become comfortable with the concept that we're all necessary and none among us is beyond reproach is if you have help is if you have someone to say, so you're charged with two double homicides, big deal, write a book, right? The young man said to me, Audrey, it wasn't about money. I don't care if we never publish the book. I'm just happy that I, that I had you, that you inspired me to think that no matter what my circumstance was, I could write a book. You know what really touched him? Mm. He had never met his dad because his dad was murdered when he was like five months old. But I knew his dad. Cause I was a party girl. I was in every club, love people, this, that, you name it. I was there. I followed stone love to this day. When I go to Jamaica, where they, here I come. I knew his father. And here's the irony. His dad was so kind to me. You know, when everybody else is trying to get with you and ruin your little innocence, his dad was that person who said, you are too pretty. You are too smart. Don't let these dudes take advantage of you. And if he saw me in the club, bought me drinks and took care of me and made sure that I didn't fall victim to need. And here it is 20 some odd years later, by chance, I meet his son who he probably never met because the child, he died when the child was five months. Okay. I'm going to be a cynic. <laughs> that all sounds nice. Yeah. But you can't, how do we, Double murder, double homicide. How do we, how, what happened? Because well, I, I, I get the compassion on the back end, but in, in my eyes or in a lot of people's eyes, it's a little, it's, it's too late for that. It's not. Here's the thing. He, it may be too late for him to not get 40 years, right? In prison and he's doing 25 to life, right? But it wasn't too late for me to get him to understand that his life still had value, Right. It wasn't too late for me to get him to understand that he could do more. So let me tell you what he did. He married his girlfriend. He's been co-parenting his two sons from prison. 
He's doing all of the things that's necessary to ensure that his sons don't fall victim to the same set of circumstances that led him to glorify the lifestyle that he chose. And how do I know this? We had a conversation. He remembers vividly when he became the man that they had to prosecute. He was home. His mom and her friends had gone partying. They came back from the party and they were ranting and raving and going crazy about some dude that shot up the whole club and so on. And in that moment, at five years old, he made a determination that he wanted women to talk about him and respect him the way they did that person his mother and her friends were talking about. I'm certain his mother, God rest her soul, she died. I'm certain his mom never in her wildest dream imagined that that conversation she was having in the presence of her five-year-old son would later lead to a double homicide or even worse, right? Because for her, it was just a thing to do. Isn't that a bit presumptuous? There's a lot, it's a whole lot of red flags and a lot of uh, missteps we have to get to from the age of five to committing double homicide in your mid-20s. Right, but think about it, right? Everything starts at one, right? There is one situation that leads to another, to another, to another. And if no one ever comes along and says to you, these are your possibilities. If everyone you're meeting, right, is telling you that you're going to probably be dead by 40, because statistics says the average black man doesn't live past 40. If everyone is telling you that because you're an immigrant, your life is not as valuable as an American. If every person you come across is giving you reasons to believe that there really isn't anything greater than your circumstance, why are you going to try, right? For example, so I'm in school and Beatrice Vitanza, who I love in truth, she was my fifth grade teacher. She adored me. She pulled me to the side and she gave me a lecture. And her loving lecture was, you need to hold your head up and not follow these American children because you have three strikes against you. You're black, you're a woman, and you're an immigrant. So please, Audrey, don't follow these children. They're Americans. Keep your head up and follow your books. So I come home and I say to my, my birth mother, Patsy, Mommy, I have to do better because I'm, I have three strikes against me. And my mother said, What? I said, Yes, I'm black. I'm a woman and I'm an immigrant. And my mother said, who told you that? I said, my teacher. She said, tell your teacher for soccer, man. You now have no strike against you. Your mother have a big wallet. <laughs> and I swear to you, that is the first and the last time I've ever thought anything negative about my blackness, my status as an immigrant, or my womanhood. Because my mother corrected that. Sometimes people think they're doing you a favor. They think they're being kind, they're inspiring you. But what they're doing is they're socializing you away from your destiny, right? So when my son that I had at 15 called me up because he was on the equestrian team and he was competing up, up in Canada and he called me up and he said, mommy, there's no black people here. And I said, yes, there are. You're black and you're there. You belong exactly where you are because you know how to ride a horse well. Go do your thing and stop talking trash. My son has never associated his blackness with negativity. My father, on the other hand, was a little more militant. I liked a white boy. 
And I told my dad, I was six years old. And my dad said, no, it is better to be a million black men's whore than one white man's wife. I have never from six to now dated a white man. You know, it's funny because Cola Booth said the exact same thing in the complete opposite. Really? She said, this was years ago, but she said she'd rather be a white man's whore than be the bottom of a, a piece of gum on the bottom of a black man's shoe. That is absurd. Her, she was probably socialized poorly. Well, I mean, she hanging out with Gaddafi and at one point she was a CIA asset. And, um, but when you said that, it struck back to memory what, what she said. So that, that's very interesting. Okay. I'm with you <laughs> up till a certain point. Okay. Right. All right. The average 15-year-old that gets pregnant, for the most part, is going to live a very hard life. Is that fair to say? I, I don't want to say that because that statement is impossible to quantify. Because what's that crazy woman? Where is she from? Is it Australia? You know, the, the crazy one, Sarah Palin. Her daughter got pregnant at 15. She didn't have a horrible life. And I can tell you countless others who I know that had kids at 15. My great-grandmother had my grandmother at 13. She didn't have a hard life. She was married. She had children. She had one child, and that one child had nine children. um, And I'm the product of those nine children. Well, this is where I go back to stats. Stats tell me a different story. Yeah, but the stats is bullshit. The stats is racist, and the stats are intended to discourage. The stats are intended to discourage. Okay. Would you, if you had a 15-year-old daughter, would you want her to become pregnant? Nobody wants their child to become pregnant. I have a friend who's 32 and her mother doesn't want her to become pregnant because she's not married yet. You're good. I really am. (laughs) You're good. (laughs) Would you advise your hypothetical 15-year-old daughter to become pregnant? I would advise... And I have, because I have six girls and three boys. I think I told you that, right? Uh I've advised my daughters to be responsible, right? And to to understand that their age is not an excuse for being ignorant necessarily, right? Uh So what I advise young women to do, because if I had a choice to make again, I probably would still make the same choice only because I know how it turns out. But if I didn't know that I was going to have my wonderful son and he was going to be so gorgeous and, 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 and everything would work out for me the way it did, I would tell my then 15-year-old self to use birth controls. Only because what happens is most young people in their teens don't have the help, the love, the support. I'm talking, I had four sets of parents, Right. Like Mm -hmm. literally, Sly, I didn't walk until I was 10 because my uncles carried me on their shoulders. I was carried from anywhere I wanted to go. I was even in school. My mom sent a car to pick me up. I used to hide from the car service and get on the bus because I wanted to ride the bus with my friends. So my reality is an anomaly, right? Not every teenager or young person who's in my circumstance has that. My grandfather, when I had my third child, my grandfather bought me a home because he felt like a three-bedroom apartment wasn't sufficient. So he bought me a house. This is why I say you, you cheated. You're cheating. And, I, and just hear me out. When I ask you, 
you know, would you advise uh, a 15 year old or would you do, you said you would do it all over again because you saw how it would turn out. That's right. cheating. If you couldn't tell the future for the most part, you wouldn't, you wouldn't just, you just wouldn't do that. Because yeah, but that's why people have abortions, right? Because they're afraid. They don't know. And more, more importantly, many people um, don't know how to overcome shame in the way that I did, right? Okay. So every person who saw me on the street and said, that's a damn shame, in my head, and this is the honest to God truth, I was thinking, say that louder, because if my uncle was here, he'd kill you. My brother would slit your throat. And my mother would probably pay somebody to beat you down. That's my personality. But that's only because that was my reality. I was never alone in this world. Imagine you being 15, everyone you see telling you that you're a damn shame, your teachers telling you that you have three strikes against you, and everywhere you go, people are treating you like something is wrong with you because you're becoming a parent. Even the Christians who rely on the Bible that says that God's gift to man is to let him live to see his children and his children's children will be treating you unfairly because you're pregnant. Imagine how you would feel. And that's why I started the Strength of a Woman Project, because I believe that the strength of a woman lies in her ability to adapt. A woman's ability to adapt is determined by the resources she has available to her. I am fully resourced. You understand? Like Mm -hmm. when I got arrested, when my face was plastered all over the news, six lawyers came to my aid immediately. None of them charged me. They, They all took on a different aspect of my case and they supported me because I'm connected to a network of supportive, kind, loving people. Most people don't have that. And that's why I wrote my book, right? Your eyes can't see my heart. Failure to man is not failure to God. Ego has no place in the law. Christian B dollar sign, a social parody about Jehovah's greatest wickedness. This all comes from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like maybe it's because people don't understand, right? They talk about rappers and the violence, but people are singing about what they know. People are creating movies about what they know. There's there's a reason why we're on our like seventh um, Fast and the Furious, right? There's a reason why there's so many Superman sequels because people are not making stuff up. They're literally regurgitating their life's experiences. They are probably um, exaggerating their circumstance, right? Or romanticizing their fuckery. But in the same token, it is all connected. So what, what, what I think we need to understand as human beings is better to lend a helping hand than to form an ugly opinion. Because when you're choosing, you should choose wisely. Because the life you may be saving may be your very own. That young man that I'm talking about, that I ended up representing and helping to write a book and to do all the great things that he did. If his father wasn't kind to me, I may be fat, sly, but I've never been the bigger person. <laughs> From the time he find out that Afim Pickney, I wouldn't have helped him. But I was extremely committed to helping that kid once I learned who his father was. You understand? In conversation, it came up and I found out that his father was someone who 20 years prior in my younger self life blessed me and helped me and looked out for me. And because of that, I was willing to help his child. And to this day, I'm still involved in that young man's life. And I'm always going to be there for him because his father was kind to me probably four or five times when I met him in the club. (laughs) 
right? But for me, mm-hmm. it was the greatest experiences of my life because everyone else was pursuing me like, like I was the pig at the goddamn luau. Like men treat young women like they have crack between their legs and they're all crackheads. So when you find a man in your young life who's kind and gentle and who's not trying to get to your crack, <laughs> I made it funny. <laughs> that is actually pretty ingenious. <laughs> I, I didn't even think that through. <laughs> you are going to love them, right? And you're going to appreciate them because you know what the, what the, what's on the other side. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's, we're all necessary. Like you wouldn't have a drug treatment center without drug addicts, right? You wouldn't have jails without people who commit crimes. You wouldn't have lawyers without people who need attorneys to defend them. So I'm never going to judge anyone. I'm never going to think I'm better than anyone. I'm going to be grateful for the life you've chosen and the role that I can play in your life. But what I'm always going to do is make sure that my impact on you is positive because I have children. I can respect that. I can respect that. But before we move on, I think the Sarah Palin is a poor example because once again, what you two have in common is well. Um, yes. And is that well. is the ultimate end all be all that changes everything that's you know but you know what comes before wealth knowledge my mother didn't make the choices that she made because she was wealthy my father didn't stand with me because he was empowered my parents stood with their daughter because they were knowledgeable because they had emotional intelligence, because they knew that if not them, then who? I've seen wealthy Christian people turn their back on their children because the child chose poorly, as if they don't know about the prodigal son. I've seen wealthy people, because I'm in many wealthy circles, make decisions that no parents should ever make. Didn't Marvin Gaye's father kill him? (laughs) Right? It's not about wealth. It's not about wealth. It's about knowledge. Knowledge is power. The more people know, you know, uh, what is that guy's name? What's the guy named? Little Wayne. He's kind of messed up. But you know what I love about him? That song he made, How to Love. Mm-hmm. If you listen to the lyrics very carefully, you understand that he knows about love. You know, I don't want to get all biblical because I'm not like some Bible thumping crazy woman, Right. But I, am, I have read the Bible. I read the Bible for the first time when I was 14 and pregnant and some Jehovah Witness came to my house trying to indoctrinate me. She left the Bible. I read the Bible. She came back. I told her I read it. She said, how? I said, one page at a time. Because I was taught to use knowledge as a form of empowerment, right? It's not about money. Mike Tyson is wealthy. Hmm. Right. There are so many wealthy people that you can name who would not have made the choices that my parents made. It was the knowledge that they had. Okay. Well, let's talk about what got you on the path to being an attorney. This is a lifelong dream for you. This is something your parents like. This is what you're going to do regardless of circumstances or how did you embark on that path? Well, I had two things that I wanted to do. Right. I wanted to be a stripper and I wanted to be a lawyer. So when I was two, my mom always partied and she took me to this club with her and she sat me on the, on the bar. And cause you know, this is the seventies you're talking, you could take kids to bars then. Mm-hmm. 
Fair enough. Yes. yes. And yes. so there was a there was a, a go-go dancer, they called them. And she was on top of the thing. I'm telling you about influences and socialization. Yeah. yeah. And this woman was, she was like all the women in my family are top heavy. Their belly is big and their butt is flat, right? So this woman came out, she had a big ass, big breasts, flat stomach, she was shiny all over, and men were like throwing money at her and screaming and the music was going and this guy was like you love her and he's like yeah she's an old whore <laughs> and <laughs> two i thought in that moment i associated whore with power right a woman of power that men go crazy over and throw money at again yeah. my mom never thought of the influence so all my life i wanted to be a stripper from about two to about six um and then i had the privilege of going to court with someone and I saw the lawyer and I decided I wanted to be an attorney. So as I'm coming up, right, my grandfather is telling me that, um, that I can't be a stripper, <laughs> right? He's like, you, baby, you can't, it's not dignified. You got to be a lawyer. So then I was like, well, why can't I be a stripper lawyer? And he's like, <laughs> no baby. So my grandfather told me that if I went to law school, when I graduate, he would give me $250,000. So I, for, I forego being a stripper and went to law school. <laughs> That's a true so story. Ha, had grandpops not made the offer? Or, 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 I'd be a stripper. <laughs> um, this is the battery's dying. Goodness. The battery's dying. Tell my Cindy. battery's dying, so you got to bear with me. I got to try to hook up my computer. Yeah, I'm going to for a second, okay? That's fine. Tell Cindy to fix it. They'll do her job. Cindy, do your job. Do your fucking job. Do your job right now. <laughs> Thank you, Cindy. Okay, I'm good. So, yeah. So, again, right? And that's why I think it's so easy for me to love. And I'm not judgmental or I could be I can be mean I'm not gonna lie about that like if you draw my eye or you will see like a mean version of Audrey I have the four personalities you know um Audrey Sandy Dewdrops Vicious Lover so you don't want to meet Vicious Lover she's mean okay <laughs> but she's the protector of all the other three personalities right okay so I think that's why though I have this childlike innocence and I'm able to love so unconditionally, right? And, and, and as smart as I am, right? So think about it. I've decided that I'm going to do my master's in education because I want to start a school. And I did it. I'm in my last semester and I'm going to get my master's in education. Nice. So the other day I'm watching something on Facebook and I see these rabbits and the rabbits are laying eggs. <laughs> so I go to my daughter and I said, do you know rabbits lay eggs? She's like, Jesus Christ, how can someone so smart be so dumb? <laughs> and I'm like, why are you calling me dumb? She's like, mom, it's Facebook. It's not real. <laughs> and I'm so trusted because that's me. Until you give me a reason not to trust you, yeah. I am taking whatever you say to me at face value. I'm meeting you where you are. I'm loving you in your space. I'm not trying to change you. And that's why people are so drawn to me, right? Mm -hmm. I'm that person who will see you at your worst and just love you anyway. Mm -hmm. Right? But I'm not going to let loving you cause me to struggle. That's something I won't do. Gotcha. Um, criminal law. That was the one profession of, uh, that was the one particular practice you wanted to, you, you personally wanted to go into out of all no. the practices. No. Okay. Mm -mm. I went to St. John's. Okay. Right. 
And um, when I went to St. John's, I met Charles Hines, who I love. I don't care what anyone says. Oh, so he's a racist. So am I. But neither one of us practice racism at work. <laughs> so so um, I met Charles Hines and he was my professor. And I fell madly in love with him because he was just such a kind person. And he had such a great background story. Same thing. Love of family. You know, he he he's just an amazing person to me. So. I, at the time, I was going through my second divorce, and my ex-husband had been deported to Jamaica. So I would bring my children to school with me, right? And then after school, we'd go to church um, because of the Judaism, we mm-hmm. study in the Seventh-day Christian faith. So we would go to church afterwards. So Mr. Hines saw this, and he said, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? I said, I'm going to come work for you. I don't have time to interview. And he was like, okay, fine. Come see me on Sunday. So I went to the DA's office on Sunday. We had breakfast. He talked about his expectations. And I said, well, as long as I can bring my kids here whenever I need to, I'll do the job. And you'll never have to worry about me. And for four years, I was a prosecutor. That's how I got into criminal law. It was just what presented itself. But while I was there, I ended up getting married again. And um, we did in vitro. I ended up with triplets. One died. We ended up having twins. And the salary just wasn't enough. So I went into private practice. And that's how I started doing immigration because I'm Jamaican and I was an illegal alien. And um, I got my green card through amnesty. That's why I was Republican until Obama ran. Then I started voting Democrat because he's a black guy and he was the first black president. And this is where it goes left. Okay. (laughs) Listen, I got my green card because of Ronald Reagan, right? But then when Obama ran, I went with him. So then I started doing immigration and then I started doing appeals because I was in the appeals unit when I was in law school. I worked in the Bronx appeals. So now I'm, you know, I'm a litigator. I try multiple trials every year. I think my my record is 2014. I did 13, 14 trials, but I won 13.5. So one, one of them was a mixed verdict. And I've been doing trials ever since. So I've, I've just morphed into this litigator. Let me ask you, as, a, as your time as a prosecutor, did you ever feel um, conflicted in a particular case? Did you ever feel that some, maybe somebody was over, ever over-sentenced, uh, overcharged? I'll tell you what happened to me in one instance that never left me. So there's a young black man. He's arrested. for a, He punched the lights out of a young white woman. Right. And I get the case. I dismiss the case. Someone comes to me and they say, why did you dismiss the case? Do you know if Mr. Hines finds out you dismissed the case, you'll be fired. And I replied, she spat in his face. They were in the laundromat. She left her stuff in the dryer too long. They were dried. He took them out, put them in a basket, put his things in. She came back and she was angry. So she spat on him. I said, if that woman had spat on me, I would have killed her. So you're lucky I just dismissed the case. I want to meet him so I could shake his hand. Because all he did was punch her in the face. Because what I couldn't understand was if you knew as a police officer that she spat on him and he punched her, why didn't you arrest the both of them? Why was this a cross complaint? She assaulted him when she spat in his face. She's lucky all he did was punch her. So my boss at the time, Lou Lieberman is his name. He was upset because he couldn't understand because apparently the woman lived in Charles Hines's building 
And all of this occurred there. Mm. And I said to Lou, I've met Mr. Hines. I know him personally. And the one thing I'm certain of is he would agree with what I did. He would agree. So that's the only conflict I've ever had, really. Oh, one more. There was a young black man who <laughs> I prosecuted him with a vengeance. And someone had um, wrote it up as a DAT. And I pulled the DAT and wrote it up as a felony. And what happened is the white officer didn't want to ruin the young black man's life because he was a star basketball player at St. Francis. Mm-hmm. So he wrote it up as a DAT, but this was a violent, violent assault where the other person was in the hospital. And so I pulled the, the DAT and I prosecuted him and I got a lot of heat for that because they said that you would think the black woman would want to help the young black man. But I, I didn't think it was fair. Like he literally put somebody in the hospital because he had serious anger issues. Mm-hmm. And because he was an athlete, did you give him a break? No. So you're pretty down the middle. I think that for me, it's really, I deal with the circumstance based on what I think is just, right? right. Um, but I'm not like steadfast in my purpose to the extent where I'm, you know, un- unequivocal to a flaw. No, um, I'm a reasonable person. Okay. Would it, would it be fair to say that you had conservative thinking during your time as a prosecutor i'm a jamaican what do you expect i'm a rich jamaican <laughs> you don't get more conservative than that are you kidding me <laughs> oh my gosh wow <laughs> your honesty is so refreshing <laughs> <laughs> again sly didn't i tell you that i'm learning as yeah I thought, right yeah until, yeah until certain things happen to me I really saw the world through rose-colored glasses. I didn't think racism was even a real thing until this malicious prosecution and stuff. So sometimes God has to let you go through some stuff to figure things out, right? This is true. Yeah. True. My road has really been an amazing one because I've had growth on so many different levels. You know, I've had a lot of opportunity to grow because of my socialization. And that's why I'm very big on treating people based on socialization. I think it matters a lot. Uh, Let me ask you, how much of your bloodline or or your your, uh, ethnicity, had they ever come into conflict for you? Like, was there ever a point where, you know... You're this, you're that, but it's like, it doesn't jive, it doesn't mesh well. Has that ever been a conflict for you? Um, no. Okay. Because in Jamaica, the, the, the thing about Jamaica, right, is out of many we're one people really means black people, right? So okay. even if you're blonde here and blue eyes, you're not considered a white person if you're Jamaican. You're considered a light-skinned black. You have to understand that where I come from, black is the majority. Okay. All of my influences are black. All of the stories of greatness I've ever heard was about black people. Um, the kings and queens that are talked about, I was told is black. I, when I told a friend of mine that the Sphinx was black, he said, no. I said, of course it is. That's why they shot off the nose. And he was, he turned red, white, and blue. He's white. <laughs> so for me, it was, I was socialized to revere blackness, right? Okay. Like being Jamaican means being black. It doesn't mean anything else. 
And if you ask white Jamaicans, Asian Jamaicans, what they are, they will tell you they're black. They think okay. they're black. Okay, then enlighten me, because I'm ignorant. Now, I've heard the term coolie used as a derogatory term. Right. Okay, so what exactly is a coolie? It's an Indian Jamaican. So okay. in Jamaica, having straight hair and really light skin and light high is a horrible thing. So that's why Jamaicans try so hard to assimilate the blackness, right? Did you know that Bob Marley's dad was white? And that's why yeah. he married Rita Marley? Because he was trying to reverse his bloodline because they teased him so much because of his light complexion. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So like in Jamaica, I was telling someone, fat, right? I'm writing a book. I'm almost done with it. It'll be out next April. It's called Fat Namekit, um, the Jamaican-American Guide to uh, Self-Actualization. And the reason why I'm writing the book is because I keep trying to explain to people that in Jamaica, being fat, being very dark is a badge of honor, even though a lot of them are bleaching their skin now. It's like all crazy. But but so f- my dad, I come to Jamaica. I'm there for two weeks. I go to the country. I hang out with my boo. And... Um, you know, I come back to Kingston and my dad is like, hmm, tell me something. You get bigger since you left here. And I go, dad, you can't say that to a woman. And he goes, I beg my pardon. I meant huge. (laughs) 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 Because in his mind, right, it is such an amazing badge of honor to be heavy and to have big boobs and the big butt because it's a sign of wealth right because only the wealthy are able to eat as much as it takes to get yeah okay okay okay, yeah (laughs) so like the men with the big belly in jamaica they have a whole song big belly man big belly man i can't swing big belly man (laughs) they're my money man (laughs) you are really old school jamaican because i am i am well not to kind of deviate a, a bit from the, the main topic, how much change have you seen with Jamaica and are you pleased with it? I mean, from the culture, the people to the eight, the Chinese coming in economically, are, are you are you worried for Jamaica? No, Jamaica is like COVID. That stuff will infect you. <laughs> It'll okay. sooner kill you than it let you change it. Jamaica has not changed. It is still Jamaica. The Chinese, if you go on the line right now, you'll see there's a Chinese guy who's Really, really proud of the fact that he has mastered Patois and he can speak the Jamaican dialect so fluidly. Okay. So I'm not worried. (laughs) Jamaica is not going anywhere. (laughs) Gotcha. Um, So let's get into you went to the other side of the law. And during you as a criminal or defense attorney, did you see flaws in in the, in the very thing that you served? years prior yeah of course the first thing i gotta tell you is um so when i was a prosecutor judges were very respectful and supportive and kind and they helped you you know subliminally even the way they questioned the jurors or so forth Mm -hmm. Um, when i became a defense attorney i'll never forget i came to court i had a case and a judge that every day i would have conversations with who would be very happy to see me totally treated me like my black ass lawyer life didn't matter to him and I was shocked because I'm like damn it's re- it's like that and yeah so I think one of the hardest thing for me um again I talked about how socialization was mm-hmm. going to the side of defense attorney I really felt bad 
because I didn't expect people to change. Even prosecutors. There's one girl, um, Terry Sandy. She just didn't speak to me. She bowled eyes when she saw me. This girl and I went to law school together. We were in the same fucking class. Oh, I curse. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. I couldn't understand why she was so mean to me, but it was because I was a defense attorney now. I'm no longer a part of the team. So is it that mindset that everybody's guilty that comes through the system? Of course. Absolutely. There's, there is really, this system is so shitty, right? In terms of um, not really, it's, it, it's guilty until your lawyer and you can prove yourself innocent. Um, I'm going to give you an example. And if you think I'm joking, he sued the city and his lawsuit is still pending. So I'm representing a young man, defense attorney, Judge Deborah Dowling. I love that woman. I, she's a black woman. All my colleagues respected her. Even Doug Rankin, who hates everybody, he's the greatest attorney in America, um, talked about her positively. So finally, I draw the short straw and I'm going to try a case before Judge Deborah Dowling. And I'm excited, right? And I go there and I'm trying the case. And the young man is telling me that he didn't do it. He didn't do it. But the DA is asking to introduce a photo of text messages where he confessed in the text messages. And he's telling me that he didn't do it and that he didn't confess. And again, because I'm keen at loving people where they are, right? Rabbits have eggs on Facebook. It must be true. Right. right? I believed him. I believed him. So I objected to the photo coming in. I kept asking for, you know, certain questions. Also, he said that there was medical evidence that he didn't commit this crime. But when the DA gave me the evidence, it was all blackened out. So I couldn't really see it. So I did my own subpoena and I hired some people out of my pocket. It was an 18B case to go to the hospital and get the records. And they did. Let me tell you the two things that happened. And these prosecutors were not prosecuted. So I'm a pray, praying person. I love to pray. I love to fast. I prayed and I said, God, this man is saying he didn't do it. If he gets convicted, he's going to prison for life. Life imprisonment is the sentence this, this crime carries. Please help me, right? Charles Hines taught me never ask a question you don't know the answer to right? Frigate, I'm going to ask. So the detective takes the stand. The DA introduced the evidence through the witness who swears to God that she took that picture. She gave it to the officer. Yes, 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 yes. Officer takes the stand. Detective, good afternoon. I want to thank you for your service. I appreciate you coming here today. And I'm going to ask you certain questions, blah, 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 right? Detective, showing you what's in what's been marked for identification as people's um two that is subject to connection. Do you recognize that? No. Uh, detective, what? Didn't you give the DA this photo? No. Sir, the photo is in evidence. The DA said you gave them the photo. I didn't. Sir, did you give the DA a photo? Yes. How do you know this is not the photo? Because when I took that photo, I did a screenshot and I had my hand on the glass and my fingers came out in the photo. I said, sir, to hell with it. I'm just going to go for the, the goal now. Do you have the photos you gave to the DA in court with you today? Yes. 
I take the photo, I mark it for identification, I ask them to make a copy, I give the people a copy, I keep a copy. Turns out the guy had been texting the person over a four-week period. Four weeks prior to the alleged crime, they had a fight, and he had asked her to forgive him and to just hear him out and give him a moment. Oh, gotcha. On the day of the crime, he texts her something else. They merge the two text messages yeah. together on a poster board. So when you read it chronologically, it looks like he's confessing. Yeah, yeah. Oof. Ask me what happened to the prosecutor. What happened to the prosecutor? Nothing. Ask me who got threatened with sanctions. Who got threatened with sanctions? Me. And you know what else happened? The what Honorable happened? Justice Deborah Dowling, who's now sitting in the appellate division, cut everybody's voucher to punish us because he got found not guilty and that man is free to this day because you know what else was wrong you remember how i told you how they redacted the medical record yeah after i got the red medical records on my own by my own subpoena the complaining witness denied being raped <laughs> denied in the medical records and this was a, a predatory sex abuse and all of these different crimes and therefore he would have faced life in prison. Yeah. And, and so that's why I am so adamant that social antagonism is the worst form of oppression. Mm-hmm. Because that right there, it doesn't get any more socially antagonistic. How could you as a judge think it's okay to penalize me for being zealous, but to never make a report that a prosecutor, a prosecutor, a member of the bar falsified evidence in order to secure a life sentence conviction against an innocent man. And you know how I know he's innocent? Because there was absolutely no medical evidence. And more importantly, for two years I had the case, there was never any allegations of race, rape. But the day that the 3030 clock was going to run out, miraculously, it turns out that this person went into the DA's office and outcried to them about things that she remembered from years before, allegedly. Did you ever have any idea it was that bad? I did not because I really believed in the system. I did. I thought the system worked. I thought our criminal justice system was the greatest system in the world. And I defended it and I still defend it. And like I said, statistics don't lie, but mathematicians do. There's nothing wrong with our justice system. Our justice system is the greatest justice system in the world. What's wrong with our system are the people who are allowed to screw around with it willy-nilly and do whatever they want to to corrupt the outcome and when they're found out they get away with it that woman who falsified evidence and got the central park five to go to prison where one of them died in prison she's not in jail right she got promoted and got all kinds of book deals and everything and now that it came out that she falsified evidence where is the prosecution i have a young man that was in mcdonald's drunk he was drunk in the line at mcdonald's um, sleeping in the passenger side, his phone rang, his girlfriend picked up the phone and saw big, good pum pum Sally was calling. And so she punched him in the face and got out the car and left him in the drive through at McDonald's. He refused to drive the car because he was drunk. And he's like, I'm not driving the car. Cops come, they arrest him. He's drunk. He's belligerent, whatever. The cops smashed his head so hard against the desk that he broke the guy's jaw on both sides 
That cop was never prosecuted. And Andrew Stoll of Stoll, Glickman, and Bellina sued the city and won. You understand? Mm-hmm. And won. And that police officer is now a sergeant because I've tracked him. He's now a sergeant. He was not prosecuted. But my client, whose alleged victim never came to court, never um, said that he committed a crime. They, they tried him based on circumstantial evidence and convicted him. And now I have to fight to do an appeal to get that conviction overturned. The system isn't broken. It's the people who are, who are monitoring the system and managing the system that are broken. They are they are morally corrupt. What did what did um this guy Ti said? They're piss poor morally, and they get away with it all day, every day. Uh, are you ever worried you you may have pissed off the wrong person? I piss off the wrong people every single day. That's why my 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 system is in such disarray. But it's fine because I'm not alone in this world, and I know how to write. And they know that if they mess with me, they're going to end up in the media or in one of my books. Because I'm not afraid. I'm not. I've never been. Our system is a perfect system. It's really good. Because this is the one system where you can find justice. You understand? Mm-hmm. I have a young man that was sentenced to life out in Nassau County. I fought the case, went all the way to the appellate division, got the sentence overturned. Sent back back to court. You understand? So the system does work, but why should I sit in prison for 15 years or 10 years or three years while my attorneys fight to get me out? You know, every time I see these wrongful conviction where, oh, black man, white man, my friend Marty Tanklev spent years in prison. He's a lawyer now because the police falsified evidence, but the police don't get arrested. The prosecutor who facilitate this lie and this malicious prosecution doesn't get arrested. Nothing happens to them. But you can't have a fight with your girlfriend. They will put you out of the house, put an order of protection, even if she doesn't want it, and they will prosecute you with a vengeance. But a cop can break someone's jaw on both sides and get promoted. How is that lawful? How is that decent? Our our constitution, state and federal, does not say that. It doesn't. So I take it you're for for them removing qualified immunity from police officers. Absolutely. You know what I do routinely? I sue the judge. I sue the, 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 the lawyers. I sue, the, I sue everyone because you know what? I'm hoping that one day someone will listen. Do you understand? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, unless someone, like, bad things happen. I, I heard David Dinkins say this when I was in law school. 1997, he came to speak at my school. David Dinkins said, bad things happen when good people stay quiet. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to fall in order to get back up again. You know, this whole Donnie McClurkin, we fall down, but we get up. Many people don't understand in order to rise, you must choose at times to fall. Let me ask you this. Um, if you're going to sue the judges, the attorneys, right? Um, what are your thoughts on suing them civilly and then attacking their their licensed bonds as, as part of the, the lawsuit? Or is that uh, something you, you don't bother doing? You just I'm leaving that to the black Israelites. I think eventually what they're doing will take root. I'm not going near that. But it makes sense to you then. So you it makes a lot you, of sense. Okay. It makes a lot so, of sense to me. 
I think so it hasn't been organized in the way it needs to, but eventually they'll get it right. But you would know how to, you know how it should be done, correct? No, I don't. I don't. I really don't. But I could find out if they paid me the right fee and no one's willing to pay me to find out. Enough said. <laughs> they're trying to get you jammed up. No, <laughs> Listen, I've been jammed, but I've gotten out of it, right? Because I'm a praying person. I'll give you an example. So there is a case in Nassau County. My client, um, I'm not going to say his name because he didn't give me permission, okay. but he was in foreclosure and he came to me and he says, hey, I'm in, well, he had another lawyer. And the lawyer and I are friends and he was like, Audrey, you're crazy enough to take this on, come. So I go, I say to the young man, you have to get the entire file because I can't rely on what the prior attorneys did. I need to see the whole file. <laughs> we go to Nassau County. We get the whole file. When I look at the file, I notice that Judge Capitola signed a judgment of foreclosure. And then she signed an amended judgment. So as I'm looking at the two, the judgment of foreclosure says the address is 3778. The amended judgment says the address is 3378. Right? And the first time they put the house up for sale and published it, they published it under 3778. Now it's under 3378 and it's being forced. So I'm saying, wait a minute, you're going to win. And he's like, what am I? The papers are defective. Uh-huh. And the judgment was issued in error. So I go back to court. That judge sanctioned me, sanctioned the client, sanctioned, sanctioned, sanctioned. So I was like, yeah, you're going to sanction. I ain't worried about you. I'm going to the appellate division. I go to the appellate division. I'm fighting. This guy has paid like maybe $100,000 already in legal fees, right? Mm -hmm. I'm fighting the appellate division. I'm going to the court of appeals. Nobody's doing anything. So I go to the bankruptcy court and I say to him, I'm probably going to get sanctioned, but I'll tell you this. Federal court, the bankruptcy trustee is a fiduciary and they must investigate. Okay. (laughs) I go there. Same thing. They sanctioned me and the guy is going crazy. Right? So I say to the client, don't you worry. The one good thing that came from this is they appointed a trustee. I'm going to read something to you. So you should play some music or something. Give me a moment. Can I have my laptop? I want to find the decision. I'm going to read this to you. And you tell me if I'm not that person who's willing to go the distance to fight for what is good and right, but it's not about race for me. It's about justice. Cause I would, same thing for, for a white, Hispanic, Asian, Martian, I don't like injustice. I'm going to read this to you. Give me one second. New York courts. And if anyone wants to look it up, I'm going to tell you right now, it's all public record. You can look it up. E-filing. <laughs> this, is, this is the type of thing that, and I'm not going to stop. So I, I'm just not. I'm not going to stop until this young man finds justice because what was done to him is disgusting. Right. And justice Capitola did everything in her power to make sure that this man would lose his house because the lawyers, I did research on them used to represent her in her own cases. So they're all very, you know, they're, they're all a part of the same friend circle and I filed grievances and no one will do anything about it. The next thing for me to do is to contact contact the NAACP because I think they may be able to help. 
But because of COVID, everyone is so swamped, no one is really being responsive. So let me just find this. Hold on. I'm on the NewYorkCourts.gov and I'm searching by case. And 01009 20 15. righty then. I'm gonna read what the trustee. So after I was sanctioned by Judge Capitola, and after I was sanctioned for allegedly filing a frivolous bankruptcy, which I didn't, I filed it because it was the only thing that needed to be done because they had bankrupted this man in the amount of attorney's fees and costs he has to pay to fight them. Um, He had between me and six other attorneys. And each time, you know, you have to pay, right? There's Mm -hmm. no, there's no getting around it. So, the trustee made a motion, right, <laughs> to vacate the referee's report. And the trustee, this is his affidavit. I'm reading the first affidavit. He said, and I quote, I am a Chapter 7 trustee in bankruptcy for the defendant. I am fully familiar with the facts and circumstances set forth herein. This affirmation is submitted in support of my motion to vacate the referee's report of sale previously filed with the court and directing the purchaser at the public auction sale to immediately comply with the terms of the sale and deposit the requisite funds estimated to be not less than $250,000 with the Nassau County Treasurer. For the reasons more fully set forth herein, this motion must be granted. The instant foreclosure action was commenced in 2015. On January 25th, 2018, a judgment of foreclosure and sale was entered by the court. Upon information and belief, the defendants filed several bankruptcy cases in their efforts to avoid a foreclosure sale of the property. In August of 2018, a foreclosure sale was actually held and resulted in the premises being sold to Frank Stella at the purchase price of $1 million. On February 15, 2019, Frank Stella executed a bid assignment whereby his bid was assigned to Little Day's Enterprise, a.k.a. Little Day. Upon information and belief, Little Day is an entity owned and controlled by the same principles as the plaintiffs in this case. A copy of the referee's report of sale dated the 26th of April, 2019, is annexed here too as Exhibit B. That report misrepresents what actually transpired in this case. More importantly, It fails to account for nearly $250,000 that should have been turned over to the Nassau County Treasurer as surplus monies. Apparently, the attorneys for the plaintiff, the alleged second mortgagee, who was not a party to the defendant in the foreclosure, and the referee allowed the purchaser to pay the referee nothing more than the outstanding property tax liens, the terms of the sale make the purchaser obligated to pay those taxes in addition to the bid of a million dollars. Had the purchaser paid the $1 million plus open taxes approximately $74,000 as described in the report of sale, 
than even allowing the plaintiff the approximate amount of $799,000 described in the report of sale, there should be a surplus of nearly $275,000 on deposit with the treasurers. The bankruptcy estate of Brian Corriott has an interest in the surplus money that were made to disappear by the nefarious conduct of the plaintiff, the alleged second mortgagee, and their attorneys. Based on the foregoing, the referee report of sale must be vacated and the purchaser compelled to deposit not less than $250,000, representing the defecated surplus monies with the Nassau County Treasurer. The fact that Brian Corriott and the other defendants filed multiple bankruptcy petitions and acted in bad faith did not empower the plaintiff, the alleged second lien holder, and their counsel to wrongfully misappropriate more than $250,000. The trustee will also seek affirmative relief in bankruptcy court to equitably subordinate any claim to the surplus by the second mortgagee. The conduct by the parties in this case is, to say the least, shocking. Moreover, the plaintiff's failure to address or remedy the misconduct is incredulous. Okay? That's ugly. So that's That's the motion that the trustee made. Ask me what the judge has done. I'm going to assume the judge has done nothing. Nothing. Okay? So they filed a response, and the trustee is now pissed. So listen to what he writes. They file a response and the trustee says this. Sorry. I am the chapter seven trustee for the estate of Brian Corriott, a bankruptcy case currently pending in the United States bankruptcy court in central Islip. The trustee does not represent Brian Corriott. I represent his creditors and I'm a court appointed fiduciary for them. I have also practiced extensively in the area of mortgage foreclosures. I would estimate that over my career, I have represented foreclosure plaintiffs in more than 10,000 cases. The instant motion by the plaintiff, the second mortgagee, and the referee seeks incredible relief and must be denied. Simply put, this court should not grant these movements any relief. Moreover, given the admissions in the moving papers, the undersigned, as well as the court, may be duty-bound to report this conduct to third parties with jurisdiction over the conduct of the plaintiff, its counsel, and the court-appointed referee. It is undisputed that a foreclosure sale was held. There was a purchase price of more than a million dollars, and plaintiff was owed no more than 800000 pursuant to the judgment. Despite the foregoing and the clear and unambiguous language of the foreclosure judgment, plaintiff, its counsel, and the referee made made monies of more than $200,000 disappear. To justify this egregious and serious misconduct, they urge the court to focus on bad conduct of Coriette. The trustee submits that even if Coriette did all of the things they complain of, they had no right to steal the surplus monies in violation of their own judgment. The motion by these parties must be denied. The course must fashion an appropriate remedy to ensure that surplus monies are deposited with Nassau County Treasurer and a referee should be appointed to determine the priorities of this money. This was on July 20th. Let me tell you what the judge did. The judge did nothing in this case. Instead, 
the judge issued a decision vacating Brian Corriett's lien on the property because he sued the referee and their attorneys and the plaintiff attorneys separately. The judge dismissed the lawsuit and vacated the list penance. You know why? Because now if Brian wins under this case, he won't get the house back. Guess why? Because they would have already sold the house. Yeah, okay. They're selling the house for $2 million, $2.5 million. So they're going to make a million five on this house. They're going to give two fifty to the referee and everybody's going to say no harm, no foul. So I went to the seventh precinct and I filed a police report. Two days later, Brian gets a phone call. He needs to surrender himself to be arrested because he allegedly trespassed when he went to the house and took a picture. <laughs> this is what I'm saying when I say our system is a perfect because you see, if it wasn't a perfect system, this referee, this trustee, would not have been in a position to intervene and make the rulings that he made, right? Or issue the findings that he made. But what's broken are the people who have the duty of ensuring that our laws are abided by in the way they're supposed to. Because Justice Sullivan, after Judge Capitola retired, continued to carry out what she's done because Nassau County is a cesspool. I had an attorney, I was gonna, I told him I'd slit his throat. I was so upset. Tell me in front of my client, you know that all I have to do is show up in Nassau County and be white and I'm going to win. So why are you trying to fight me on this? That's what he told me. And I smiled and said, but if I slit your throat and you're dead, then winning won't matter, will it? (laughs) You know, I'm just kidding, right? I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, that's the sad part. So for me, social antagonism being the worst form of oppression is something that I'm trying to remedy, right? I'm, I'm not a soapbox person because the very same people that you're trying to help will turn around and stab you in the back. The woman that had me arrested, black, Jamaican, just like me, 70-year Jehovah's Witness, lied her ass off on the stand. I was crying for days. That's why I wrote the books. I shut in for 30 days and wrote the books because I couldn't come to terms with what she did. I thought that I was the, I was the hero. <laughs> so how much have your experiences in and out the court with the books, how much has that kind of changed or lessened your viewpoints on, on basically people? Are you still pretty much the same, you know, happy-go-lucky, jovial, yeah. or now you're just, okay. I'm still happy. You know why? Because we're humans first and everything else second, mm. right? People aren't yeah. mean. They're, they're desperately wicked, right? So I'm starting the, the thing called, um, <laughs> I'm starting the thing called Thoughtfulness Thirst Day. Okay. Right. And the reason why I'm doing Thoughtfulness Thursday is to help people to find ways to um, to cope in a way that won't make them act on their desperately wicked intentions. Right. So um, if I'm hungry, rather than choosing to stab you and kill you to take your lunch money, I'm going to come and ask you and 10 other people for a dollar. And eventually I'll get seven dollars so I could buy a meal. But mm-hmm. that's something that you have to be taught. Right. I think if you're allowed to just be carnal, to just act like you're in the jungle, then you're always going to be an animal. Right. You have to be taught like this. Thoughtfulness thirst day is about being thirsty without being desperately wicked. It's about being having the mental capacity to reason, because what sets us apart from animals. Right. Is our Mm -hmm. ability to reason. Mm -hmm. The greater your ability to reason 
the less likelihood you'll resort to wickedness. When I was told that this woman was and her daughters were lying on me and I was going to be arrested, I'm connected to some really, really, really strong people. And many offers came my ways. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to hire an attorney. And I'm going to go through the justice system because wherever I am is where God intends for me to be. I'll tell you this. The day I got arrested, I was in the jail and there was a girl and I was teaching everyone how to play um, The Lady Eats. Have you ever played that game? No. Okay. So The Lady Eats, I'll start. The Lady Eats Apples. Your go. The Lady Eats Oranges. No, you have to say apples and oranges or you lose. Oh, apples and oranges. Oh. So the lady eats apples, oranges, and bananas. Okay, gotcha. You see? So we're playing this game in the jail, right? I'm teaching the girls in, the, in my cell to play the game. And we're all playing. And then I noticed there's one girl that's not playing. She's like sitting there very quiet and destroyed. So then I lost to a Hispanic girl who was like, I fucking beat you and you're a lawyer. And I thought that was cute. <laughs> and so I walk over to the one girl and I'm like, hey, what's wrong? And she starts crying, right? And so I said, you could talk to me and I'm an attorney. And then I tell all the other girls, I said, guys, continue playing your game. I'm going to take her in the back. So I go in the back of the cell by the toilet and I sit with her. And then she tells me that she was raped and the guy who raped her called the police on her. And when the police came, they arrested her because she busts his head. She said she was at a party, her and her sister, and he, she don't know what he gave them. But she woke up and he was on top of her having sex with her in his apartment. And this was a white guy and she's a Hispanic girl from California. So I, the cops arrested her because when she came, when they came, she was hysterical and he told him she busts his head. So they arrested her and charged her with assault. So I called my friend Mark Crawford and I told him what's going on. He spoke to her on the phone. He put in a notice. He couldn't come to court. So Ron Neer, my lawyer, Ronald Neer, arraigned us and she got out and Mark got her case dismissed. I felt like how come they chose to arrest me on that day? And how funny is it that the day they chose to arrest me is the day she was also present. I feel like wherever we are is where we're needed the most. So I've never been afraid because you know, the one constant in this equation I call life is me. I was there when I was 15 and pregnant. I was there when I was two sitting on the bar. I was there when my brother pulled a gun on me and squeezed the trigger in my head because he was so mad that I spent all his money. I was always there, but I'm still here. Right? I'm still here. Wherever you are is where God intends for you to be. So you can't be afraid of your destiny. And I think what happens to us, which didn't happen to me because I can trace my genealogy back eight generations, there's no history of slavery is that the pangs of slavery has left the remnant of evolution on a lot of people so much that they have been socialized in fear. They're afraid of afraid of afraid so much that fear has become their portion that they're literally afraid of everything, including death, which none of us makes it out alive. Death comes to us all eventually. What are you afraid of? Have some kids and carry on your legacy. So when I was told I was going to be arrested, I surrendered and I got arrested. And while I was in the jail, I played some games because just because I'm in jail don't mean I shouldn't have fun. No, no, that's where that's where we disagree. No, but here's the thing. Why do we disagree? Because someone told you that you aren't great, except you are living your life a certain way. 
I am greatness personified. I am great in whatever form I present. I was great when I was an illegal alien who every time I saw a cop, I turned the other way because I thought they might be looking for me. I was no less great then than I am today. I am the same woman that I was in April 14, 1970, that I am today. Well, when I say that, I don't disagree about the greatness. Maybe just our experiences with the jail a little bit different. And I, I wasn't playing games. I was, <laughs> shit got real. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, uh, <laughs> that's where we going. That's where we did disagree on, on the jail experience. <laughs> I know about the booty bandit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, shit was, yeah, shit was wild. But um, I, I mean, that, that is really dangerous. I mean, <laughs> I guess it depends. It it really depends on the region, um, the city, state. You know, some prisons are not as rough as others, but you know, California penal is probably one of the roughest. You know, you got Angola yeah. down there, and, and so um, yeah, you. Do you understand that our circumstances and our, and our reality is very different, right? Because no matter how tough the jail an attorney in jail is a king. It's it's true. I was watching Saul. There were girls fighting. And the minute they heard that I was a lawyer, that shit stopped. No one threatened me. Everyone wanted my help. So again, I have to be realistic. I can say, oh, when you're in jail, you should play games. Yeah, easy for you to say, counselor. <laughs> you came in here as a lawyer, right? It's like joining the army. If you come in with a degree, you're not going to be on the front line, right? Yeah, right, right. So yeah. what I c- consistently make myself mindful of is that my circumstances aren't comparable. And I had to tell a girl that once. She was like... Oh, you think you're better than me? When the white man see you, when the white man see me, he sees a nigga. And I was like, mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. Stop right there. First, ask yourself why the white man is your standard of measure, because that's your flaw. Second, if he sees me and he sees you, he sees one he can mess with, and the other one he has to think twice before he even speaks to me. We don't have the same circumstance, pumpkin. Don't fight me. I'm willing to help you. But I'm not going to help you if you're calling me names. Right? And she calmed right down. She was mad because I said um, $25,000 bail on her boyfriend. You want to hear the irony? Yes. I set the bail. I was the prosecutor. I set the bail. And then as I'm asking for the bail, I hear, Sandy, how could you? And I turn around and I look at the defendant and he's Cliffy. He and I went on a date when I was pregnant because he was trying to cheer me up because the baby father was acting stupid. <laughs> I didn't Because you don't look at them, right? When you're a prosecutor, they are docket number 2004KN006129. I was prosecuting this young man and I had never turned my head to look to see his face or anything about him because all he was to me was the docket number. Docket number. Yeah, that's when he said Sandy and I turned, I was like, Cliffy, oh my God. Judge, can I approach? I go up, I tell the judge, da 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 da, and I ROR'd him. (laughs) 
Yeah. Do, do you think that's part of the programming that needs to change? When it, it is. As far, okay. It is for everyone, not just for, you know, this is not a white person problem. This is a human problem. We are socialized to act in our roles. And it doesn't matter what the person looks like. I'm going to tell you this. Some of the people who have helped me the most look nothing like me. My attorney, Ron O'Neill, who is one of the greatest attorneys here in the state of New York, if not the country, mm-hmm. he had a heart attack defending me. That's how passionate he was when they were trying to take my law license and put me in prison. You know what I mean? He was fighting the system so much to save my butt. He looks nothing like me. You understand? Really and truly, I think what we have to come to terms with is to understand that there is an inhumanity that occurs when people start to become just a role and not a part of the solution. No matter what you look like, if you are not going to be humane, you're a part of the problem. You are never going to be a part of the solution. And I, you know, I, I literally, every night I would go in, my shift was four to one, boom, 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 bang up, bang. And, you know, I'm writing up the office. I'm looking, oh, yeah, he has four arrests, five arrests. Oh, yeah, he's getting $25,000 bail. <laughs> because what we do is we are rule followers. We follow the rules. We literally follow the rules. And, and a lot of times the rules are shitty. And they shouldn't be the rule. Let me ask you this. Okay. What are the basic lessons that black folk should know when it comes to civics, legalese, law? Um, Because is it fair to say that the average black person at some point in their life will come into contact where they would need to learn or know something civically, something about law? If you don't know where you're coming from, you're going to, if, if you don't know where you're coming from, you're never going to find your way. And if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up someplace else. So the, the thing that I do rather well, you want to hear something funny? You would never yeah. believe this. I was on the spectrum. My brother no, you? Me, is a, is a genius who started college at 11 and I came along two years later on the spectrum. Yeah. Interesting. But what happened is I was socialized well. I was never told that I couldn't. I was never deterred. I, was, I have never in my life been called anything but amazing, right? But it wasn't in a condescending, she's special, right? So, uh-huh. like, I remember one time I was in school and this kid said, what's wrong with you? You retarded? And I said, yes. <laughs> or duh. <laughs> <laughs> And he looked at me all puzzled, right? And then he, he, I don't know what he did, but I ended up beating him up. But that was my thing. I, I use anger as my defense mechanism. So I'll fight you in a minute. Yeah, I, I have no problems laying hands on you. <laughs> so what happened is I was raised in love and, in, and, and, and I was taught to pursue knowledge. So my uncle Trevor, who would carry me on his neck back and forth, he would read the dictionary to me. And my job was to navigate so he wouldn't fall in a, in a pothole. So he would read the dictionary while he's carrying me on his shoulder. And what that culminated in is that I was never afraid of reading, even though I had all of these um, issues and I saw differently and I didn't, I couldn't really process information in the way my brother could. Mm-hmm. I learned how to navigate the world from the perspective of what he told me. And this is what he said. 
if you want to be powerful, you must know more than your would-be oppressors. Yeah. I like that. I like that. That's what he told me. I was like maybe six when he told me that. Mm -hmm. And I never forgot it. Let's get to your books. Um, Who are they for? It's my hobby. So I've written 14 books um, over my life because I, one of my, in therapy, um, I was taught to journal, right? That, Mm -hmm. that energy never dies. So you can't keep energy inside. Cause I really was a violent kid. I, my brother hit me and I stabbed him 38 times with a fork. Yeah. Um, like I was not that kid you played with little boy, fancy dress, slapped my face. I stabbed him in the belly with a pair of scissors. My grandmother gave me a good talking to you. Can't just stab people. It's not right. That was what happened. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I was, I'm telling you, I'm not ashamed of my socialization. It is what it is. I was socialized on that level where it may sound outrageous, but I think it made me the woman that I am. So one of the things that in therapy you're taught, uh, and I've been in therapy since I was a child to help me to be able to acclimate to the normal human environment. Right. Mm -hmm. So in therapy, I was taught that energy never dies and that you, you can't keep negative energy in. So what I was taught to do was to write it down. And then if I wanted to, I could either keep it or burn it. But that's how you get rid of that energy that's inside of you. So when I found out that this woman that I loved so much had betrayed me and that her children, who I wanted to introduce to my pair of scissors, um, were lying and spearheading the campaign, I knew because I'm a lawyer, I couldn't stab them, right? That wouldn't be right. So... I wrote, I shut in for 30 days. I fasted every day and I prayed. Um, I drank water and, you know, took my medication and I did a lot of vegetables and fruits, but I fasted um, 12 hours every day and prayed and prayed and prayed. And that's how I wrote. I ended up writing and publishing these four books because all of my other books, I've written them in various stages of my life, but I've never finalized them. Mm -hmm. Right point where they could be published so among the 14 i only published these four and so this one can you see it christian bitch it's christian b dollar sign <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly what it that's what, yeah. yeah a social parody about jehovah's greatest wickedness right um i called my friend arif who is from um, elmont printing one of the greatest printers and and i told him what i was experiencing and he said to me, what is your biggest angst? And I said, I still feel like I love this woman, right? And so he did the cover with the childlike innocence. You see the little stick figure? Yeah. Even though it's this tremendously um, difficult situation, the reality is there's still that childlike innocence that doesn't want to believe that she betrayed me. She mm-hmm. made my freaking way through law school. This woman was instrumental in my life, Right. So how then does she do this to me? And if she had done it out of truth, it would be one thing, but she lied, mm-hmm. right? So the allegation is that I stole $720,000 from her. Um, they're down to, I think, two forty dollars now, because luckily they brought the claim six years after the fact. Okay. But I was able to get like a lot of the receipts and stuff. The very first payment I made from the money 
was $100,000 to pay off one of her mortgages that she had said she didn't have a mortgage. And then the bank came and froze her assets because she lied. And I paid off that mortgage, right? Um, <laughs> I paid almost another 150000 on another one of her properties. I gave her son $10,000. I paid $40,000 for her daughter's benefits. Like there was all of these things that I had done that they were able to deduct. Mm-hmm. As I found the receipts, they admitted. But while there was no receipts, it was all lies, right? right. Um, this was the very first book I wrote. She and I started this project together. She inspired me to do this because we started doing something called the Tears Empowerment, our radio show. And what we would do is once a year, we would have the Tears Humanitarian Awards where we would honor people who were involved in intelligentsia because we wanted to merge intelligentsia with dance hall, right? Um, Again, remember what I told you? I believe that knowledge is your real power. So for me, it was, I wanted to honor people who weren't good at sports and entertainment. I wanted to honor doctors and lawyers and the the woman who started the bodega. Um, I had one woman who started a little accounting firm from her home, but she wasn't an accountant, but she was really good at doing taxes. I honored her. I had a computer specialist that was doing, um, you know, going to people's businesses and fixing their, their point of sale machines. I honored him because he was so instrumental in the lives of young people. I honored um, court officers, you know, people who you wouldn't ordinarily see on a, um, a cereal box, but mm-hmm. these people saved the lives of so many, right? And of course, I honored a lot of lawyers and teachers. I honored my fourth grade teacher, you know, Mary, Mary Raymond is amazing. I love her. She, she has a Facebook page that she has all of us on. So she, this woman and I had done this and we made a ridiculous amount of money doing this. Your eyes can't see my heart mm-hmm. um, from the, the humanitarian awards. I honored Charles Hines. He was one of the honoree. Um, and so then when, after the arrest, I did the ego has no place in the law. Right. And so that was lovely. I loved this book the most. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll read it to you. It says, It appears that life is not without a sense of irony. Audrey A. Thomas Esquire wrote this book because she was arrested and deprived of her liberty for a period of time. However, it is clear that this situation has liberated Mrs. Thomas and freed her from the oppressive bonds of mental slavery and intellectual blindness. This observation has been illustrated in chapter five herein, which reads in part, The greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. I've spoken on this topic a number of times, but I think for the first time in my life, I finally understand the importance of absorbing the concept. I finally understand why it's absolutely necessary for us to question our every conclusion. Mm -hmm. As the songwriter says, I can see clearly now the rain is gone, but my rain would be R-E-I-G-N. R-E-I-G-N, and by reign, I mean reign of ignorance that blinded me into thinking that because I'm an intellectual, my conclusions are valid and can never be baseless. Oftentimes I say to my children, so long as you think yourself the victim, you can never see what you're doing wrong. I'm going to tweak that statement now, that my eyes are no longer wide shut, to say as long as you think yourself the intellectual, 
your level of ignorance will elude you. Audrey A. Thomas has embarked on the road to transitioning from intellectual to enlightened, and she is intent on taking you along for the ride. I love that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I like that. I do. I like it. And then last, but of course not least, um, this one, failure to man is not failure to God. Everyone on this front cover is someone that's connected to me in some special, you know, kind, loving way. Um, as I told you, I grew up with four sets of parents, four sets of grandparents, great-grandparents. I had a village. So this one, I picked, my birthday is 414. I picked um, every scripture in the Bible. That's 414. It's 66 chapter. And I broke it up into three volumes. This is volume one. Although they made a mistake and put volume three on the cover, but they're going to fix that. So what I said was the circumstances of my birth, upbringing, choices, and chance are not nearly as important as what I do with the gift of life. Nice. Nicely said. Um, I, I got to bring you back because there's so many other things I want to delve into with you and different topics. And I don't want to shoot my load all at one shot. Uh-huh. So, hour and a half. So let's do this. Let's just. This will be part one. Yeah. I want to bring you back for part two. So we'll work out scheduling behind the scenes. But just a whole other trove of stuff I want to get your take on, and and how you see current social themes and narratives currently uh, in in the state, especially with with Black Americans and and. Um, so I definitely want to do that. Um, the books. Um, would you say, you know, would it help the person, the reader, be in a certain mental or headspace to, to receive the books as far as, you know, reading no. it and then picking? Okay. No, especially um, your eyes can't see my heart. It's extremely relatable. Because, okay. you know, I'm very candid about my likes, dislikes, failures, successes. Um, I define all my failures as successes because they led me to where I am. I've never failed. It's not condescending. It's my truth. I feel like even my failures were successful because they put me on a different path to greaterness, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If my foundation is great, then I can only build on it. So I think it's very relatable. Um, Christian B. Dollar Sign. (laughs) Maybe um, a little less palatable if you're not into like the the concepts that the Christian Bible um, furthers, right? But gotcha. for me, what I always tell people is, even if the Bible is total BS, it is the greatest philosophical text that has ever been written, right? So you can apply the concepts therein to your life, mm-hmm. and in doing so, you can uh, better your circumstance. So um, the, 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 the one, this one, ego has no place in the law. This one really talks about a lot of historical facts. Like, for example, um, I found out through my studies that Rikers Island is named after Richard Riker, who was the first district attorney for the state of New York. And what this son of a gun used to do is he used to capture runaway slaves and bring them back to their masters. But what he started doing, because it was so profitable for him, was he would capture free men and women, tear up their papers, and enslave them. Oh. So, so Rikers Island, for me, 
one of my goals, I'm 52 now, when I have some time, is to see that place torn down, shredded, scrapped, and never named after another demon again. Because Richard Riker is still arguably returning the runaway slaves to the master. Because Riker's Island is, is like a slave camp. I thought they were going to, in the process of shutting it down or, or closing I hope so. it. I okay. hope so. But I think that it's disgusting that they named that place after him. Um, and what kills me is I found out that there are many other things like that. Downtown Brooklyn, um, right down by the, where the district attorney's office is, if you walk down there, you'll see that there's an alligator eating a child. Mm-hmm. In the olden days, they used to use black children as alligator bait. Um, I actually got a picture of it in the book. They would use black children as alligator bait. Can you see it? Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened is they continued. They are hiding a lot of this ugly history in plain sight. Like in the subways, there are Confederate flags all over, but it looks like just regular tiles on the wall because you don't notice. So then I started doing all this research and I found out that the equivalent of what would be today's Trump supporter was mad because the civil rights movement was so successful. So what they did was they left all of these little negative clues to like be in your face. You know, you may be free, but we're still in control. Yeah. So these are the things that I think knowledge empowers you to deal with, right? Because if you're knowledgeable, then you know how to address certain things. It's not about race. It's about disempowerment, right? Um, I want to make sure that Regardless of what people look like, no one has the authority to disempower them in ways that binds them for generations. Our country is about come as you are, leave empowered. Is it not? In theory, yes. In application, that's no, it's right. In application, it's not. So that's what I think we have to work towards, right? But I don't think that you're going to convince people to jump on your bandwagon if all you're trying to do is turn the table. Right. There has to be some unity. There has to be some turning the other cheek. There has to be some. I'm not going to promote diversity only to the extent that I want to displace you. Uh, My theme for my thesis in my master's program is how to promote diversity without displacement. Right. Um, You're not going to tell me that I should let you in the neighborhood and then drop the bomb that I have to move out. Mm hmm. Right. I don't want to move out. If I let you in, it's not because you're forcing me out. I'm letting you in because there's a way that we can do this without displacing people who belong there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think that's what we have to work towards. And until we do that, we're always going to have problems. And like I said, I'm telling you this. People don't know this. It's like, oh, we have a black mayor. Crazy. That black mayor just applauded a cop who punched a girl in the face. Yeah, it's it's all over the social you understand? media rounds. Yeah. So you have to understand that it's not the race of the person. It's the mentality. It's what is in their heart. What is their intentions? What are they going to do? Because I know some white, I have a white um, a, a prosecutor. When I represented the girls in the McDonald's case, Janet was instrumental in me winning that case. She was the prosecutor. You know who wasn't? A guy named Tony Herbert. I asked him so much to help this little girl. And he would not even go speak to the family. Because he was outraged at the behavior. But how are you going to correct the behavior. If you don't get involved in the socialization. 
There is a problem with socialization. These kids are in gangs, not because they're gang members, but because they're socialized into it. Someone has to be willing to talk to them on, in a way that makes them like listening to them. You can't just speak to people just to get them to, 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 to hear you speak, right? When you speak, you have to speak to people in a way that makes people want and like listening to you. And when you listen, you have to listen in a way to understand, not just to reply to what they're saying. Right. And I think that's the problem. So you have the black man who's asking for 25 year sentences for gang assault. And you have Janet, who's the white woman who is a prosecutor who made sure that girl was able to graduate. You understand? Yeah. So that's that's my thing. I'm I'm not on the racial bandwagon. I'm black first and everything else second. Right. That's just who I was socialized to be. Um, I I don't think I'm black empowerment. I think I'm black because I believe that blackness is empowered. Right. Gotcha. So for me, it's more so if you, to whom much is given, much more is required. If you are in control, if you're in power, then you can't use the blessings that the universe has given to you to curse the lives of everyone else. Right. You can't. You have to use your blessings to make it possible for everyone to experience the feelings of being blessed. We're not all the same. Like I said to you, if you and I go to jail right now, my reality as an inmate will not be the same as yours because I'm a lawyer. And even if they take away my law license, I'm going going to jail as a lawyer. I'm not going to jail as a jailer inmate, right? So, you know, I'm never going to be not me. Right. Being an ex attorney is better than being an ex con. Right. So what I'm trying to tell people is it doesn't demean or dismiss you to help someone, even if that person doesn't look like you. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of people who are on the front line. Andrew Stoll, uh, uh, Stuart Rubin. Stuart Rubin is one of the greatest criminal defense attorneys I've ever met in my life. And I've known him since I'm 10 because he beat two murder cases for my uncle. Yeah, I watched him do that trial. He's amazing. But I'm going to tell you this. You can't, people can't help you and then you step on them and expect them to continue helping you, right? After he beat my uncle's cases, my uncle caught a federal case and hired some guy who had a nice website and didn't pay Stuart to do the case. Like, how do you do that? Where's your loyalty? Why aren't you sticking with the lawyer who got you through your worst days? And then your explanation is the guy had a really nice website and he says he plays golf with the judge. Now you're going to close the door for everyone who has to follow because Stuart Rubin won't be willing to do for them what he's done for you. Uh, we have to yeah. all be accountable. We have to come back and say thanks. Let's stop that right there. Um, Cause I want to bring you back for part two. Um, last words for the people, where can they find you? If they, ever wish to, uh, to acquire your services and all that good stuff. My number is 877-LAW-NERD. <laughs> you almost had me going. It really is. 877-LAW-NERD. Oh, that's, that's my number. 877-LAW-NERD. It's 877-529-6373. But more importantly, they have to go buy the books. I need you guys to buy the books. You get all four of the books for $100. Just go on the website and it's Audrey Thomas. Is there a link? Yeah, the there link's a, a link. in the chat, yeah. Yeah, there's a link. Just click on the link. 
you if you buy all four at once because each book is like thirty five dollars. So if you buy all four, you get it for a hundred dollars. All right, Audrey A. Thomas uh, Esquire um, says thank you. Um, yeah, we got to we'll work it out. Yes, I'll bring yeah, we'll bring you back ASAP. So um, all right. Yes, go get out of here. Go enjoy the rest of your day. Go. Thanks for having me. You know, thank you for coming. So, right. um, with that being said, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. All right. Welcome to the Morning Star Show with Super Sly seventy five. You are listening to onthewakeupradio.com. Sign up for otwtube.com, uncensored free speech platform. Shout out to our super producer Cindy Ashby. All shows are live on thewakeupradio.com. Catch replays on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, as well as otwtube.com. And now back to your host, Super Sly 